0: This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. I'm Claude Barraby, Director of the Naval Academy Museum. Our guest today is Mike Nelson, an Army Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel and currently serves as Professor of Military Science and Chair of the Military Science Department at George Mason University. Previously, he served as the Deputy Director of the Commander's Action Group at U.S. Central Command for General Joseph Votel. In this capacity, he served as a direct advisor to the CENTCOM Commander and was responsible for coordinating all strategic communication between the CENTCOM Commander and political and military leaders throughout the Middle East and Asia, Central Asia. Prior to that, Mike served as the Future Operations Director for Combined Joint Interagency Task Force, Syria, and was one of the architects of the United States military's initial efforts to counter ISIS. He has extensive experience at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels throughout 11 deployments with the 82nd Airborne Division, the 5th Special Forces Group, and Joint Special Operations Command to Iraq, Afghanistan, Jordan, Qatar, and Kosovo. He holds a bachelor's degree in history from Virginia Military Institute and a Master of Science in Defense Analysis from the Naval Post- Postgraduate School. He is a 20- 2011 recipient of the Hans Jones Award for Excellence in Research in the Field of Irregular Warfare, and he's previously been published in several defense-related journals including War on the Rocks and Real Clear Defense. Mike, welcome to Preble Hall.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: And I should Probably also, Ed, you were a sea cadet. In case there are any, uh,
1: you know, hardcore naval history people here. I, I was. I spent my freshman year of high school as a sea cadet in uh, Woodbridge, Virginia. So I do have a little bit of, uh, uh, of naval street cred, I guess. <laughs> um, so listeners would,
0: would, will probably wonder why I'm doing another episode of uh, an interview with an Army officer, but I think it's important to know that we're going to talk about Iraq and Afghanistan and the general Middle East today. And that it, you know the past 20 years certainly the Navy had a role. We were sending IAs from ships there. We had reserve reservists who were called up as intel officers, as medical officers, supply officers. But these were largely Army operations. And since Mike has that expertise in in working with the Navy as well, I think it's important to to talk about that over the past 20 years. I think we probably just start, Mike, with. Is it too early to have a retrospective? Uh, because you know, when you think about poli sci professors, they're often asked who was the best president of the United States, and they may comment on the person who is still the president. Or there's just not enough time. You know, Harry Truman. It took a long time for political science professors to really provide a perspective on his role as president, and his numbers have gone up. Is it too early to talk about? Iraq and Afghanistan and what and the ramifications of those?
1: I, I don't think it's too early to talk about them. In fact, I think part of the reason we are where we are is because we considered ourselves too close to the problem while it was going on and probably did not take enough of an introspective look of where we were going, where we were, how much longer we had. Uh, I think uh, when, when Kropinovich wrote his book about Vietnam, it was considered too early to talk about, or at least it ruffled too many feathers of those who still had you know, skin in the game from, from the, the war in Vietnam. Uh, and it probably took a while for that conversation to become recognized as the correct answer, that the US Army had squandered a lot of opportunities in the war in Vietnam by fighting the wrong war, fighting the war that they wanted to fight, or fighting the war incorrectly. And I think that uh, you know part of the problem, we had 20 years. We had 20 years in Afghanistan. We had less time in Iraq. Uh, I I know it's a controversial opinion, but I feel like we got there closer in Iraq. Uh, We corrected ourselves a lot quicker, but it partially was because uh, we finally were willing to have a conversation about what had gone wrong before. Um, Afghanistan, I don't think we ever really did. I don't think we ever recognized some of the foundations of sand that we built our original strategy on and never uh, had the wherewithal to change some of those.
0: Let's start with Afghanistan then, just because it was a longer war. You know, something that struck me years ago when I interviewed the last two surviving members of the OSS deer team that went into French Indochina in July of 1945 to train Ho Chi Minh and Jap Mm -hmm. in a in basically in a regular warfare against the Japanese. I asked them, you know, when we went into Vietnam in the 1960s, did anybody ever interview you? And one of them, Henry Purnier said, no, I I went to the CIA. I said, "I, I know Ho Chi Minh. I, I, I helped train him in job I, I'm willing to share information with you see I said no see I said no we've got this covered don't worry about it good luck to you in, in your retirement <clears throat> was there any indication in in your research and your experience that prior to Afghanistan we learned anything from the, the British or the Soviets I mean I know there were Soviet generals who had written
1: I mean i, I I remember in the early 2000s, uh, you know, everybody who could get to a bookstore was either buying or telling other people to buy *The bear Went Over the Mountain*. Right. So everybody thought, like, we we don't know, you know, it's to to paraphrase a common expression, Afghanistan was a faraway country about which we know very little. When we got attacked, and all of a sudden we were very interested in it. Um, I found so my experience in Afghanistan was kind of odd. I was a, I was a when I was in the 82nd, we we thought we were going to Afghanistan, my brigade, and we ended up sitting out the first 18 months, basically, of the war until we invaded Iraq. Then I went to 5th Special Forces Group, which was Iraq-focused, so it was over, it was Iraq and the Levant was where I'd continue to deploy. I didn't get to Afghanistan until um, August of 2011, like right before the 10-year mark. And I remember thinking at that time, wow, I I made it here right before it wraps up. Hmm. Because by the time I got there, the messaging was constantly, we're drawing down and leaving. So for the last 10 years of the war, we were playing on what we thought was borrowed time, borrowed political time that we would not get extended. Um, And on my way to that deployment, I read Soldiers of God by uh, Robert Kaplan. And what I was struck by was it was all the same players, the same warlords who were the, the key influencers and players in 1980, I can't remember which year he it, wrote it, but in the midpoint of the Soviet war, yeah. were the same ones we were either fighting as leaders in the Taliban or who were key members of Jirga, And I don't think we really appreciated the cultural, tribal, the non-political or non-office influence that a lot of these people had. One of the key mistakes I think we failed to recognize is... We, we made the mistake of debathification in Iraq. We said, if you were part of the previous government, you have no role in this in the future, and that created or at least fueled the insurgency. And it wasn't until the Sawa we were able to welcome some of those people into some position of prominence or, or of, of leadership. We never, until the South Asia strategy of, you know, 2017 really said there's a place for the Taliban or mm-hmm. for members of the Taliban to be reconciled Outside of like at the the tactical level, like Minister Rabani was trying that in 2011, 2012 or uh, until he was assassinated. But we never recognized this is a political entity that we're going to have to come uh, to deal with. And then by the time we did, it was it was a fire sale. It was what do we have to give you to just get to the table and agree to something? We gave away the farm and especially we gave away the farm without telling Jeroa we were negotiating away. So I think a failure to appreciate really what the power structures in Afghanistan were. That was our biggest problem. It wasn't that we, I don't think we fall into the same mold as the Soviets did. The Soviets tried to conquer through brutality, and we largely tried to avoid that. But we still didn't have an appreciation of the place we were trying to, we, we tried to force our solution onto something where it was a, a, or a, a, an environmental misfit.
0: And, and going back, because Kaplan taught here for a year, about uh, just 16 years, 17 years ago now, in the poli-sci department, and you know... You mentioned the people that we were going to be facing, but there, was, there were also potential allies. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about the early days of the war in Afghanistan, just two days before 9-11, you have General Massoud, who's who's assassinated. Uh, I think it was a cameraman who had a mm-hmm. had explosive device in his camera. And just a month later, you had Abdul Haq, was it, mm-hmm. uh, who was ostensibly, if not on our side, at least he was somebody who was going to oppose the Taliban, and he's killed, so a lot of these these folks that might have been allies in our place, maybe, uh, just weren't there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> did, did we fundamentally misunderstand the culture of Afghanistan going into it, its history? And I'm going to frame it with, with a question on uh, there was a major, and I think he might have been a Special Operations, uh, Major Jim Gantt. Jim Gantt, yeah. One tribe at a time. One tribe at a time, and I know that in, when I was over at the Pentagon in 08, least reserve, as a reservist, that was going around a lot, and he actually spoke here with Stephen Pressfield to the midshipman In that case, I mean, what what impact, I know it didn't have an impact on, on uh, changing operations, but... Is that something that was taken seriously in terms of changing
1: how we did things? So I think it did. It caught. I remember when when Jim Gant's paper went viral and everybody started reading it. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from him. He's the one who put it on paper and, right. and got it, uh, got the attention for it. But he, uh, I remember a lot of us were thinking he's he's saying what everybody. All of the like the ODA level commanders and and the guys on the ODAs the the NCOs who had been doing this had been thinking for a while. So I was a team leader, an ODA commander in Iraq in 2007-2008 um, during the the um, the uh, kind of the the big swing of the Sawa, and I will always refer to it as the Sawa. It's remembered in American culture as the Surge, and I don't like that. Um, Why? Uh, well, we like. Uh, um, simple explanations for things and mm-hmm. so uh... graduate of this institution uh... john mccain you know famously uh... Um, advocated for what became known as the surge i'd like to point out that he made that speech at the virginia military Institute, my alma mater <laughs> um, but and, and it was essential it was key yeah. because at that time what we had was a belief among a bunch of disenfranchised sunnis and many of them were bad actors but who'd been told you have no role in the in the future of this country they had also made bad decisions to sit out the first parliamentary election, but and who believed they were going to be left at the hands of a partisan Shia government that was going to seek retribution, seek revenge for years of Saddam's oppression, and that we were just leaving. So they they were going to, they were diehard in that. The demonstration of American commitment mattered by by doubling down by pointing out that we were not going to withdraw hastily. That mattered, and that allowed the Sawa to then reject some of the more extreme elements within the Sunni tribes. But what it also did was we recognized the power structures that actually existed. We didn't say, uh, okay, we'll take these tribal fighters and then we'll uh, incorporate them into the Iraqi army. We said, we'll make you concerned local citizens. You'll be this ad hoc militia. You're still run by the same, you know, in best case scenario, uh, militia leaders, worst case scenario, you know, criminal thugs who who have also influence that over the populations but we recognize those power structures when Gantt's paper came out what he advocated for was using these village militias using the natural tribal and, and village structures that existed and we read that we as the United States read that and said that sounds like Afghan local police uh, which was a better option than what we'd been doing, putting se- security solutions down at the local level, but it was still very structured, very bureaucratic, mm-hmm. relied on a pay system and a oversight system in a corrupt Kabul government rather than just empowering the local chieftains to act accordingly. Um, I, I think pretty highly of a guy named Thomas Barfield, who used to teach, I think he taught at BU, um, but he came and talked to us at NPS. He came and talked to us... Um, when, before I went to Afghanistan the second time he talked to the, all the SOCOM leaders who were going and he said a couple things uh, but he said when you order a sandwich that comes with Swiss cheese you don't get upset when your cheese comes out and there are holes in it He goes, you have to look at Afghanistan the same way you're not going to try to make it uniform, you're not going to try to make the same rules for Kabul that you will for Nuristan. you need to look at and recognize there are certain places that aren't going to be strictly governed by the Kabul government but they can be coordinated with and that feudalism or something that looks like that to us is a more legitimate form of government in Afghanistan than, you know, strict democratic bureaucracy that looks like purple, purple fingers, you know, uh, showing votes, that it was, it was kind of an organizational misfit for what the people of Afghanistan were used to. They didn't want Taliban rule, but they didn't necessarily naturally lend themselves towards uh, these bureaucracies that could be, not be maintained by a, by a corrupt government.
0: When you look at World War II... So we were, ta- we were chatting about this before uh, the interview. Uh, when U.S. soldiers are going to the Pacific or sailors and U.S. soldiers and airmen are going to Europe, it's an abbreviated war. I mean, when you think mm-hmm. about it, we're only, you know, flying over Europe for a couple of years. Uh, and even in the Pacific, you're there for less than four years. There isn't this necessity to understand the enemy. Whereas when you're in Afghanistan or Iraq for two decades, you know you have to have some semblance of who you're fighting. Do you think that uh, we could have, the United States, if not its allies, could have educated officers and senior enlisted better to prepare for that? Or was that pretty much irrelevant to how things were conducted?
1: So I, I think the problem we as... Americans. I'm not even going to say the American military, but the American society doesn't really have a feeling for how they what what our role in the world is anymore. Um, Well, like you said, World War II was was fairly limited in scope. We we think of it 41 to 45, but in reality, when we talk about it, you know the you know a lot of people's understanding of World War II is Band of Brothers. Well, that's June of 44 to April of 45, right? That's I mean those guys were in it but they were in it for less than a year. Right. Um, we fought, we defeated, we came home. Uh, I think the problem we don't have is, no. through multiple administrations, nobody wants to make the argument, we're going to be there for a long time, it's going to be a long grinding slog, you're not going to see any progress. I mean, we have that one Dick Cheney speech that everyone remembers the the, the, the more scandalous sounding parts of it, but he did say, like, you're not going to see a lot of progress. Um, but I, I it... When everything is run off of a two-year cycle of you know, trying to demonstrate success so that you can either win re-election or get your party's uh, elections in, in, in Congress, nobody wants to make the argument that like, this is going to be ugly for a long time, and we're not going to win outright, and a lot of Americans are going to die, but at a slow rate over the course of decades. Nobody wants to make that argument. Um, you and I talked before this about you know, the British history with their experience. And the 1800s are the history of slow, low-grade wars that maybe sparked up and went down, and and but basically, there was the they were in the business of empire maintenance. Um, a, a common friend we talked about before this, you know, who became an AFPAC hand. We thought, hey, we're going to have this whole career field to to make officers experts mm-hmm. in Afghan and Pakistan culture or Pakistani culture, uh, and then we said, never mind, we don't care because we don't know how long the war is going to go on. Um, so understanding up front, what is it what is it we're trying to accomplish and how long is that going to take will help set the tone, I think for whether we become experts at the tactical level or whether we just try to accomplish limited means and leave. Um, Anna Simons, one of my professors at NPS, uh, at wrote a book called the Sovereignty she co-wrote a book called the Sovereignty Solution. It was basically that the United States is not good at getting involved in other people's cultures and that if we are harmed or maligned or have interests that counter some other country, we should go there. Accomplish limited means and leave and let them sort themselves out. Uh, and I think that's becoming a common or popular opinion. I'm not sure I agree with it. Uh, I think that makes the world all those problems to fester. But it is, it's an easier solution to understand.
0: Is it because we don't tend to rely on the real experts? I mean, when you think about who might have been an expert on Iraq prior to 2003, know, you figure maybe oil companies, people who've been there, who've lived there in the past, at least. Um, State Department, yes or no? I mean, but there's a lot in the academic community who study these cultures in depth. Do you get a sense that if, that DoD ever really looked at and, and consulted with these kinds of experts, or did did they just say no? We've got all the expertise we have uh, here at you know DIA or wherever.
1: Um. I I think we. I mean, from a broader perspective, particularly in Iraq, I think we looked at who were the people that we could believe were experts that told us the things we wanted to hear. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top, but the the guy from the uh, Iraqi National Congress, who said, "You know, oh, believe me, this is all going to be fine. It's going to be easy," and because that confirmed an easy plan, and he ostensibly was an expert and had, you know. Connections back into the country, which he really didn't. Uh, I think a lot of people wanted to buy into that. Um, the we tried a little late with the the uh, anthropologist teams in Afghanistan to do some of this, but I think you know at the at the tactical level, what we under what we tried to communicate were very simplistic things. You know, uh, some some real basic guidelines. Um, I think part of the problem was failing to set real long-term guidelines for how to act and behave and then empowering, you know, NCOs to do those things. You know, a lot of times Iraq was fought at the squad leader level, right? Mm -hmm. And squad leaders found themselves being, uh, you know, particularly in some of the conventional forces, really hindered by a lot of desire to control uh, each individual um, interaction or thing that was taking place. We had a lot of misunderstandings. We had a lot of, but it, I think generally, uh, you know, after a couple of years, we figured out what the average Iraqi family was like and how interacting with them could go well or poorly. Um, yeah, but, Nate,
0: Nate Fick writes about a couple of stories. He has some anecdotes in his book, One Bullet Away. Yep. And uh, about what you could do on a local level. It sort of reminded me of uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, A Bell for Adano. Yeah. If, if you understand the local town and what they just really need, you can respond to that. Something that's that's kind of a sensitive issue, mm-hmm. uh, going back to what you said about Americans like to have a nice, easy answer for things. You know, uh, There was a movie that came out, you're, you're too young to have seen it, I think, in its first run. It was called Stripes with Bill Murray. Oh, I remember and, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we were always trying to figure out if it was a comedy or a documentary, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think we had those for the Navy too. But something, uh, he says, hey, we're Americans. You know, he's given this great speech to to the, his fellow soldiers. You know, we are we are 10 and 1. Or I, don't, I know somebody on the internet will say, no, we, he said that we were 8 and 1, whatever. <clears throat> but we don't like to say we've got losses. Is it is it too easy to say that whether or not Iraq and Afghanistan were in the win or loss columns, or do we need to better convey to the Ameri- to Americans and to our allies that it is far more complex than just saying this was a win, this was a loss? And again, I, I, I'm the first one to mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, unfortunately I think tried to summarize a very complex issue in three or two letters. Uh, so I'm, I'm calling myself out for, for
1: having made that mistake. But what are your thoughts on that? I, I think, I mean, this may be, well, I don't think it's an unpopular, but it may be a sensitive point. But I think it's its easy to say that Afghanistan was a loss. Or it is clear to say easy is probably not the right way to put it because it takes a lot to grapple with. But we set out to accomplish, I'd argue, too much. And we failed. Right now, none of that is being accomplished. You know, the, the strike on Zawahiri demonstrates that even just the core essential element to prevent AQ's rest- return to Afghanistan, that he was sitting in the, in the house of Suraj you know. So it, it, we, we have failed, we may have postponed some of the bad effects that we were trying to do and we created some good, or we're trying to prevent, and we created some good effects in the short term that maybe allowed some people to get out or maybe allowed some people to have at least two decades of, of a decent life in some way, shape, or form. But Afghanistan's a loss. There's, there's no other way to. We should not sugarcoat it. We should grapple with that as a people and as, as a military. Um, Iraq, I would say the, the harder part is making the argument for when we win. So, we, we, we come onto the global stage at a time when I won't say the world's getting more complex, but we. Because I don't think I don't think there's you know another Kaplan book you know Warrior Politics. There's nothing nothing new under the sun. Um, we're just becoming aware of how complex the world can be as we've been kind of standing off, separated by two oceans, protected by the U.S. Navy. Um, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I give a shout out to my host. It's a lot for you. I know <laughs> what's up. Um, but we. Uh, so I got in an argument recently. And unfortunately, I, I deleted it because, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the writers of the, uh, the, the Iraq uh, survey or the, the Iraq report said I was wrong. But I, I would argue that, that based on what President Bush, um, George W. Bush, set out as his goals after the war had been entered, that the U.S. military largely accomplished those. He said a safe, a safe and stable Iraq uh, that is not a threat to its neighbors, that does not have weapons of mass destruction and can govern itself. Well, arguably, we're there in a messy way. Now, it took us two iterations. We had to go back, partially because we backed the wrong horse after the the, the 2010 parliamentary elections, Mm -hmm. and he did turn out to be kind of a partisan who was targeting his political allies. But, you know, by and large, you know, you could say, well, there's still U.S. forces there advising the Iraqis. That's true. Is South Korea a safe and stable country that can govern itself without our assistance? I don't know. Um, So... There are a lot of people who walk away believing we lost Iraq. I think that's up for debate. I think we definitely went about it in a really ugly manner from 2003 to 2007. It took us a long time to realize we were fighting the war wrong. Uh, And there are a lot of people who just shook their heads and said, no, 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 you don't realize everything's going great. Uh, without realizing that we were going about it the wrong way, and because we weren't, in, we weren't recognizing those natural power structures. We weren't recognizing we were fighting against the stream instead of using the stream to try to accomplish common goals. Um, but I think that you know, we, we, if we choose to take on the role as being involved in things around the world, um, we're going to find ourselves in messy situations that don't look like victories or losses, or, or that aren't as clear to tell. You know. And some of those may be delaying actions, maybe pushing back 20 years against uh, the terror threat was what we needed to do uh, and just just delay it. I don't know. Um, But I do think that leaders of all forms uh, need to be prepared to talk about the goods and bads of what we're doing through diplomatic and military means. Um, You know, General Petraeus has a Especially as we talk about what's going on in the news today, you know, a lot of, his, uh, a lot of the, the, the negative stories and remembrances of him are coming up. But one of the things that I do think that he deserves a fair amount of credit for is when he took over as the commander in Iraq, he went before Congress and said, it's not going well, but it's not irredeemable. And these are the steps we can do to change mm-hmm. it. And everyone before him had been saying everything's going fine. And, and that, that frank discussion that things are not always going fine needs to happen more often.
0: Dan Green, who's a Navy reservist, was on this podcast uh, probably about six or eight months ago and bought a book he wrote. He had done uh, several deployments as a Navy reservist and also once one as a civilian. And he, he talked about coming home. <clears throat> and we didn't get a chance to talk about these, these quote, unquote, wins and losses. But when we're trying to convey uh, ideas on social media, and this is where, you know, this is the uh, marketplace of ideas sometimes and sometimes it's the marketplace of of hate and vitriol unfortunately but can we distinguish between strategic and tactical victories so when I teach my midshipmen you know we're going through the American Revolution I say look Valcour Island it was a tactical defeat essentially but a strategic victory because it allowed the U.S. to do this and it denied the British use of of the seaway for a time Um, with regard to Afghanistan is it safe to say Um, and to convey to veterans that this was these were tactical victories and to help them distinguish between you you won individually collectively it was a broader concept that was well beyond your control to for a strategic victory or is that not a route we we would normally go through
1: i think we have to we have to we should not sugarcoat things for the, the the feelings of veterans i guess for lack of a better way to put it i do think veterans should be proud of what we accomplished because when we look back on it it's hard to it's hard to grapple with and i personally uh, over the i mean we just went past the the year mark of, mm-hmm. of afghanistan falling and that was a rough time i think for a lot of people who'd served there we, at the same time in addition to the guilt i think that that i know i and others felt about the people that were left behind the Afghan allies who we asked to trust us and side with us and did, and Mm -hmm. then are left to their own devices fairly quickly, or at least at a faster rate than they were expecting. Um, There's also just our friends that died for, so I have two soldiers that were in my company when I was a company commander in 2014, killed in June of 2014. um, And one of the problems I had grappling with was if if the war was going to end and we were going to leave, what did 2014 matter more than 2010? That's that's and it's not an easy answer to deal with. I do think that there is something to be said for doing right at the tactical level. For I mean, I don't mean to, to put this in Manichaean terms where you know we are the the side of virtue and right in all things. I mean we we've, we've seen that you know Sergeant Bales demonstrates that we're not always the ones who are on the side of good or right or as individual actors. But I do believe that the United States tries to act with good intent and that the vast majority of Americans, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and now guardians join because they want to protect those who cannot protect right. themselves be the Americans or the people that we're interacting with and I think there is a great deal of pride that should come in saying at the time when these malign actors were trying to impose their will on a population we stood in opposition to them but we have to recognize that just like Vietnam we can't sell the you know the the army loves to point out that we never lost a gunfight against the NVA or the, or the VC Well, that's true, but you know there's one flag flying over Vietnam right now mm-hmm. um, and there's one flag flying over Afghanistan, and it's not Jero's flag. so the only reason I draw that distinction and point out that we should be proud of what we did and we should be proud of the, the, the cause of good that we tried that we labored and sacrificed for. Um, we have to recognize that if we don't see the failure and see it as a collective American failure, then, then the 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 stabbed in the back by the politicians narrative kind of solidifies. And I think that that I think there are a lot of vets who have who have who have grasped onto that that um, the politicians sent us to the war, the politicians restrained us in war, the politicians then withdrew us from war, and all three of those things they should be condemned for. Um, David Maxwell who was also a professor of the the friend of ours who uh, was an AFPAC hand uh, he wrote a great uh, article a couple of years so near and dear to my regiment's heart is unconventional warfare mm-hmm. and he wrote an article a couple of years ago where he said uh, SF does not conduct unconventional warfare the United States does right and and then it's important to remember the whole country makes these decisions and we as servants of the country of the Republic fight when we're told to and withdraw when we're told to and we have to recognize our part of that as citizens and military members not just as people who got betrayed I think that's I think that's an unhealthy narrative
0: I want to go to the issue of jointness because you know we each in our own ways advocate ad, advocate for our respective services the one the services that we've selected for for our lives or at least part of them and there was a time that the Senior Admiral in Sencon had was using a statistic that there were more sailors on land in Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan than there were at sea in Fifth Fleet. Uh, let's talk about jointness and what you saw uh, during your deployments. is what worked and what didn't.
1: So my experience. So in in joint in the traditional sense, the pre. War on Terror sense. I have five years of joint time between SOXCENT and SENCOM, and, and those were you know existing organizations that so, supposed to work jointly that 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 had kind of the 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 systems in place to understand the equities and and, and concerns of all the functions and, and services. Um, when we found ourselves, first of all, you know, we found ourselves in Iraq, facing that Iraq was the one that was drawing most forces. Uh, and, you know, going back to that, people heard what they wanted to hear. Nobody wanted to listen to General Shinseki when he said it's going to take 400K to, to pacify this place. Made, you know, even worse by Paul Bremer's decision to debathify and demobilize the Iraqi army. Um, we suddenly found ourselves in a huge uh, uh, force crunch. Um, Dwell in the U.S. Army was... Uh, I, I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but it was somebody who said, um, "You know, we we weren't we weren't really at war because it was just kind of this low grade thing." And I and I, I took a little bit of issue with it. When I was like, from from 2003 to, to about 2009, no, the the U.S. Army was pretty tapped out. You were you were going and you were going right back, um, which we really didn't experience
0: before. I mean, we were, right. again, we were talking about World War II, where you know, like my father or your, you know, your relatives, they're out in Europe for three months, six months, mm-hmm. maybe a year out, You know, after D-Day and, and you're back. Um, m- you know, maybe uh, Vietnam, there were maybe you may have done two or three deployments, but this is entirely different kettle of fish. So,
1: and so I want to come back to the us thing. I'm not going to sure, but, but I do think that there's something else there that you know. When we watched Band of Brothers and we saw the interviews with the Easy Company guys at the beginning of every episode, mm-hmm. you realize these guys have lived full lives. They've been business owners, they've been grandparents, they've been whatever. But when, at their core, when they think of what they are, they're you know a paratrooper veteran of World War II. Um, and that was because of one year that defined their life, really. Um, and I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I think there's something that happened within all of us. I spent a good chunk of my career having come back from, getting immediately going into pre-mode plan training, going back to, thinking about planning for, going back to the, everything was focused on what was going on in the Levant or Afghanistan. Um, and I don't think we fully realize how much that's going to cause, like I, I'm getting, I'm in the process right now of, you know, going through retirement, I'm leaving this thing that has defined me. The only thing I ever wanted to do and the only thing I have done since college, And I don't think I fully have grappled with how that has defined me, how I think of myself as someone who was focused on the war writ large. Um, And I think that's going to affect a lot of us uh, in ways we don't know. Now, but back to Iraq and the jointness, uh, I I did see, I remember, uh, obviously, I don't mean to slight the Marines either. The Marines actually, uh, you know, obviously had a heavy burden out in Anbar doing repeat deployments as well. Uh, and so what we found was the Air Force and the Navy got tagged for a lot of, like, uh, it seemed like key functions, things that they could bring expertise to. Um, so I remember very early on EOD, like Navy EOD was all over the place, uh, Navy electronic warfare. It seemed like any time we were doing anything with EW, it was the Navy who was running it. Um, a lot of SIGINT analysts were coming from the Navy. Uh, uh, Air Force was doing a couple other key functions, but it was it was largely like, let's take these things that I'm sure had key roles that the Navy was counting on them to do, unplug them from whatever their Navy formation is, and put them in these Army task forces. Um, I know that you know there's a joke that, and I've made it myself, that you spell joint A-R-M-Y, right? <laughs> um, and it, it happens that all of these CJTFs were run by Army or Marine commanders and sergeants major for years. So I'm sure that was a cultural issue. I'm sure that was a issue where our mobilization timelines didn't line up with how the navy normally does things um and uh you know i remember the first time i had to write evaluations for people in other services and i'm looking at that just at a a minimum like i know the key things that have to be in an oer and an ncoer now i'm being asked to do this am i looking out for that sailor or airman appropriately to make sure that they're getting the recognition or am i artificially inflating somebody who didn't deserve it. So I, I think there was, I'm sure there was a lot of um, hindrance that happened to our Navy and Air Force counterparts because they were asked to support an Army task force or a Marine task force. Um, but it, it didn't seem like we got, I mean, others might uh, might disagree. I don't think we got good at delineating some of those functions until probably OIR um, and making it more. But I, it seemed like all of, uh, Iraqi freedom my whole time there it was always these kind of hodgepodge like here a bunch of sailors doing uh, navy reservists who are who are gonna inspect customs on your way back. That's it was just that was it was always gonna be Navy reservists yeah. the Seabees. The Seabees were everywhere doing building stuff. It was always that kind of stuff. And then you'd get the odd you know SWO or pilot who was just sitting in the jock and you're like, How'd you end up here? Um, what are you know you're
0: you're a teacher. What do you convey with regard to lessons learned from Iraq and Afghanistan for this next generation. You and I are both in the classroom. We both have this next generation of army officer, navy officer, marine corps officer. What do you tell them to try to try to win what may or may not be a similar conflict? So because I because as I, you know that they, they, they're always changing. Yeah. The war the, the war between Russia and Ukraine is a different war because it's adding in technologies. It, but you're still fighting over the same territories that you have for, you know, a thousand years.
1: So uh, before we started this, I, I, I told you that I would interview a lot of high school students who are applying for ROTC scholarships. Um, and one of the other questions I'd always ask them is, uh, you know, where do you get your news right now? And a lot of them misread that that I was asking whether there was a political bent. So I started giving a caveat, like, I, I'm not asking about your politics, I'm asking U.S. sources versus international sources. Um, and I said, you know, because I cannot tell you what the crisis of your generation of army officers is going to be, but there's going to be one. And I'd point out that when I entered the army, peacekeeping in the Balkans was what we were doing. That's what we, we thought our role was helping to transition the post-Soviet world into modern stability. And then I went to Kosovo in January to July of 2001 Came back feeling like we were the biggest show in town in the, in the summer of 2001, and then a couple months later, we were no longer the biggest show in town, and that was no longer the crisis or the main effort of my generation of army officers. So, I, I, I almost feel like there's I, I would give people direction in um, almost split direction. So, I'm a firm believer that lieutenants and ensigns in the navy need to learn the basics because your lieutenant years are just too valuable. Uh, to learn how to run a platoon, how a company or battery or troop functions. So you learn all those support functions before you become a company commander. So I I had a lot of cadets when I was teaching that would be very focused on how do I get to special forces or how do I get to one of the special mission units? And I'd say, like, you need to slow down. You need to learn how to be a platoon leader, how to be the best platoon leader you can be. So I think at at the, the core blocking and tackling, they need to focus on that. But at the same time, I'd tell them, You need to pay attention to what's going on in the world. You need to pay attention to the values of the service that you're entering into. You need to pay attention to the values of the country that you represent and the constitution that you swear an oath to because we're going to put you in situations where we can't rehearse. You're going to be asked very weird, or you're going to find yourself dealing with very, grappling with with very weird questions. Um, And what's going to guide you at the end is those values that are instilled in you, whether they're, you know, the the service values, the country's values, uh, what you're there to do and how you're going to lead your soldiers. So at the same time, both, you need to have this very large, distant aiming point to guide you, but you also need to focus just very tactically at learning the basics before you then try to, you got to learn how to play the notes before you can play jazz. Um, And so that's what I kind of give them that split guidance, I guess.
0: What are you reading now? Uh
1: so I just finished actually it's right right, right there my uh uh my bio. Uh I just finished um, my my uh, or it's not in my bio. I just finished my MBA, so luckily I have time to read again now uh for things that are not um, not um which, uh, academically related. And I just finished uh, The Hardest Place by Wes Morgan, uh which is about the Petch Valley in Afghanistan and one of the reasons i think it's really good uh he takes a very like most americans have heard of it most americans who went to afghanistan never spent time there it's this small bit of micro terrain you know in uh, nestled in the mountains of afghanistan and the generations that went through there and did not know why certain decisions were made there why certain outposts were put there what two rotations before had encountered uh, demonstrate just—it's a in microcosm a great example of kind of the flawed year-by-year thinking of the war in Afghanistan. I mean, it's 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 almost a, a trope to say that we didn't fight a 20-year war; we fought 21-year wars, and everybody knows that, but nobody did anything to change it.
0: What other the books would you recommend?
1: Ah, uh, so. We talked about it before the interview. One of the reasons, one of the, the books I really liked recently was *The Generals* by Thomas Ricks, uh, because I think it represents um, something we've we've lost a little bit. We're, we're a machine bureaucracy, and therefore we exist to maintain the, the the force, and that sometimes means that certain gates have to be hit at certain times. Um, that means sometimes we protect officers' careers. At the detriment of the organization itself, because like, oh, if if we relieve this person, then they won't move up, or if they don't get company command at this time, they can't get promoted. Um, I know the services have taken steps now to try to delay that. You're allowed to opt out of promotion boards. You're allowed to stay in positions longer. You're allowed to take sabbaticals or apply for sabbaticals. So I think we're getting better at that. But the way we looked at leadership in World War II, or at least that you know, the General Marshall looked at army leadership in World War II because he was a VMI grad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is something that we could learn a lot from that when we're trying to accomplish something, the individual's career goals matter a lot less than the progress of the organization. Um, like I said, if I mean, a lot of my reading recently was done on um, uh, either events I was engaged in or events that, uh, that um, I was uh, recently completed. I think, I think it's called Degrade and, uh, shoot, I can't remember. I just finished it. It's the history of, uh, before Wes Morgan's book, it's the history of OIR. And I, I went back and read that kind of to see how my, my remembrance of it, um, Degrade and Destroy uh, by Michael Gordon. Um, uh, to try to like see how my perception of what I did, you know, jogged with history. Whether you know the amount of time and effort I put on something, you know, is 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 apparent. Uh, one of the things that uh, I worked a lot on when I first got to CENCOM, or Saxon, excuse me, was the train and equip program that culminated with then General, now Secretary Austin's testimony that we had four rebels in Syria. Uh, you know, this probably one of the greatest, at least, PR failures, and definitely probably programmatic failures that we've engaged in recently. Um, so, seeing how that, that reflects. But I, I think that for young leaders, um, they have to have an understanding of what the organization they're entering into came from and where it's going. Um, I, I think that history is important not just for the stories that they tell and the stories of great heroism, but understanding the cultural traditions. And the Navy's really good at this, you know, and I think, and actually, I think that we don't necessarily understand this about other services. but there's a reason why in the army, you know, cavalrymen wearing funny hats, funny cowboy hats matters. It, it builds a tie back to where we were and those same institutions and cultures and values that will direct us as we're going. There's a reason why the Navy has these traditions that seem odd to the other services because they harken back to what you just showed me, the age of sale, right? Remember where you mm-hmm. came from and that'll guide us where we're going. Um, I think as we enter into those more complicated times, the more we have an understanding of what we were, Um, and for good and bad, the more we'll be able to uh, lead our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and guardians uh, in where we're going.
0: Our guest for this episode has been Lieutenant Colonel Mike Nelson. Mike, thanks for coming to the Naval Academy. Really appreciate it and giving us your perspectives.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and other episodes, please leave feedback wherever you're listening to us. Have a great day.
1: Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy
0: or the Naval Academy.